Welcome to the Librarian's Guide to Teaching podcast. I'm Jessica Keebler. And I'm Amanda Picart. So on today's episode, we are going to address a controversial article that has many librarians tweeting their responses. But uh, before we get into our discussion, let's just talk about how our week has been. How you doing? Oh, it's uh, it's been a busy week. Um, instruction has been somewhat winding down, at least in the online classes that I'm supporting. But on-site is starting to ramp up. I was in two classes this week, and I'm in at least one class um, every every week for the next like three weeks. But it's it's good. What's going on with you? Um, well, I'm sure everybody that's listened to our two episodes so far knows that I'm obsessed with LibWizard. <laughs> <laughs> and excitingly, I have actually built my first LibWizard tutorial this week. So that was very exciting. I haven't actually gotten to build a tutorial. So I've done the quizzes and the surveys and the forms, but I've never done one of those. So I'm finally putting one together for an English class that I've been having some issues with engagement in. And I'm hoping that maybe walking them through the tutorial in the class with all the different activities might make it a little more interesting. So that's that. Oh, that's that's exciting. I'm actually working on four LibWizard tutorials um, with the assessment built in. So um, it's in the works, but um, it's going to take us time. We're hoping to finish by the end of the semester and launch them in the winter. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's a slow going process right now. And those are going to be standardized instruction. Yeah. Yep. Those are going to be standardized instruction that are going to be embedded in all of the sections of a particular class. So we're doing two and two and two marketing classes, a management one, and then uh, two in legal studies classes. So we're uh, it's exciting, but it's also uh, you know a little nerve wracking. So. Yeah. Exactly. It's not just a tutorial. It's like it's going to be standardized. So yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. Have you um, completed them yet? The LibWizard tutorials? No, I'm still in the build out stage. So I finally got all the slides done this week. Uh -huh. um, so now I have to just go back and make sure it all makes sense, touch up any spelling, grammar, test mm -hmm. it actually and go through it once. So still in that part. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing about it. That's exciting. Yeah, I'll definitely send it over to you. All right. So why don't we get into our topic for today? So the article that Jessica mentioned that is um, controversial, and I actually first heard about it on Twitter, um, and you did as well, right, Jess? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is uh, an article that was um, um, published earlier this month in the Atlantic called College Students Just Want Normal Libraries. And I thought it would be a good episode for us to tackle because I think it touches on, um, obviously it touches on instruction in, in, in some ways that I don't think the author realizes. Um, but it also talks about, you know, librarianship and um, outsiders' perspectives of librarianship. And I think it's important to note here that the woman that wrote the article is not a librarian. And that's always interesting to me. I mean, I think it's exciting when people who are not librarians want to write about librarianship and libraries, but then it's also disappointing when they just don't properly represent us 
Right. And that was something that some people on Twitter were saying was that they were getting this article from their faculty members like, hey, look what she had to say. And then it becomes work for us as if we don't have enough work to do to respond and myth bust. And, you know, that's not really necessary. If she had just interviewed a librarian, maybe the article would have been different. But we'll get into that, too, in our discussion. Absolutely. Um, so she does touch on a variety of points. So the way I thought we would kind of talk about this is kind of responding to some of her, um, her points um, mm -hmm. and then just go back and forth. Um, so I think I, I want to point out a, one of her earlier points that she made is that um, libraries are pouring resources into interior design updates and building renovations or into glitzy technology. Um, I think that that's an unfair statement to make because it's not always the library doing this. Um, I think sometimes there is pressure from an institution uh, for libraries to become more than just a library and um, become a learning hub. Um, I think from an institutional standpoint, I think they're trying to um, get the students all in one place. And the library sometimes becomes that place where um, the students can meet with the, you know, um, academic success um, center, meet with the library, and then, you know, have it, uh, access to computer labs and glitzy technology all in one location. So it's not always the library. I think there is external pressures that she didn't consider. Right. Exactly. Like libraries aren't improving in a bubble. There's a lot of institutional context. There's societal trends and climates that uh, guide that decision a little bit. And, you know, even if that's misguided, maybe the administration is trying to attract new students because of low enrollment, right? And they're trying to go for the shiny things. Uh, that is misguided, but it also doesn't imply that students want, quote unquote, normal libraries. And, you know, she mentions that there was a, a maker space at uh, McAllister College. And she quote, she says, quote, that it resembles that of many tech companies. So isn't that a valuable job resource then, a job preparation resource for students? Uh, so that I thought was a little interesting to say that, but then say that it wasn't valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's very um, far off. Um, you said that it had a 3D printer, right? The space? Mm -hmm. Right. I think a lot of libraries have print, uh, 3D printers, uh, especially a lot of public libraries. Um, so I, and I think they, there has been a lot of great programming built around um, these types of technologies that I don't think people um, dig into or think about. Right. And one thing that a lot of people had issues with, with uh, most, with a lot of the things in the article were the citations that she used to prove her points, like the citation about the makerspace. One was an article written by a student in the student newspaper about what they see the library as. So that's one person. That's not really a good sample size. Um, and the other citation was a Cengage study of 3,000 students who were asked, what do you do when you're at your college library? Which is great, but use a makerspace or digital technology lab wasn't even an option to select. 
So how do you gauge whether or not they want technology or not if you're not asking them that? So that, well, again, was a little bit of a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's not a fair assessment um, if it's not even on the survey. <laughs> right, it goes back to our episode last week about asking the right questions. <laughs> I, absolutely, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to another argument that she makes is that students um, are something along the lines of students want print, they mm -hmm. want books. Um, and I think it's a very short-sighted argument. I agree that e-texts, um, you know, it's not always the student's preferred option, but there are other factors. Again, uh, one is external pressures for e-textbooks from both, you know, institutions and vendors. And now um, at the state level, in New Jersey at least, there is this initiative that all of the colleges and universities have to show how they're making textbooks um, open access. Like they have mm. to have a plan. So that example that she uses that a student drove to another campus to get access to that print book, yes, that's a valid point because it's still preferred, but it's also external pressures that she, this woman did not take into consideration. Right, yeah. that's true, exactly. And that's, and there's the textbook argument, and then there's also the print argument. Like at the beginning, she was talking about that uh, Charles Gosnell, who felt like, and it was a historical uh, example, but she was talking about how the this person, Charles Gosnell, felt like too many books were being weeded and too many important titles were being taken out, and that students want to be in that environment of print books. That was one of her arguments. And then the other was about, um, what was her other argument? Oh, so her other argument was about print versus ebook comprehension, so that mm -hmm. students uh, understand and take in information better when it's in print. But if you read the article, the study author actually states that she's not suggesting that we move back to print, but that we should really improve students' digital reading and comprehension skills moving forward, which would really help everyone. And I think that makes a little more sense. Um, and I think the study author also said that the differences weren't really that big between the comprehension between print and ebook, that it wasn't a, a ginormous amount. So, you know, let's make ourselves more adaptable rather than shifting backwards. Yeah, yeah. And then also just to touch on that point that students want to be around books, it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to check out books. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that also goes to, um, you know, when libraries have an opportunity to redesign their space, they look at their circulation. They look at what is getting checked out the most. Um, how can we weed our collection so that it's current and fresh and also make space for things that we know students are going to use? within the library. Right. And how do we do that? We have to ask our students what they use. I think that was one huge issue uh, that I had with the article too, was that it talks about students in this way, like they're one huge group and they're, they're all the same. But we know that they're not. I mean, based on institution, based on race, gender, prior experiences, where we're from, you know, all of that accessibility, all of that 
affects how we learn, how we study, what we want out of a library. So we can't just talk about students as a, a capital S students. There are so many differences and we have to be talking to all of our students in our populations. Yeah, yeah. I also want to talk about the title of the article because yeah. what does that even mean, a normal library? You know, like mm -hmm. why label it that way? What what is this, you know, what what is normal? You know, even in general, what is normal? You know, so to just say students, college students want a normal library. I, I don't know. It just, I can't, honestly, I can't believe that that got published. Right. Because to me, I could see thinking of back to historically what maybe libraries used to be before there were so many different types. But even then, why choose normal? That's such a value word. Yeah. There, it, yeah. There's, there's yeah. such an almost like a, a positive connotation that doesn't need to be there for normal. Even right. in psychology, I, psychologists don't believe that normal exists. So why try mm -hmm. to put that on libraries? She could have said traditional. Yes. You know what I mean? Right. Traditional. That would have been more of a word people could relate to and understand. But normal was just an, an odd choice for me. Mm -hmm. I, think it, I think it automatically put me on the defense. Right. So if you don't offer only traditional services, your library's not normal. And maybe that was why they put it there, so that we would click on it. <laughs> yes, it's also very clickbaity. I agree. Yeah. I Darn agree. it. <laughs> so, so the next point that I want to mention really kind of pressed my buttons, and I think you know, you're going to talk about this a little too, is the part in the article where she talks about the fancy instant messaging. <laughs> yes, exactly. <sighs> I mean, we do such a significant number of chats and instruction on our chat service. And, you know, if she had done her research, she would have known that chat service is something that is pretty much standard across public and academic libraries, and that, you know, it extends our services and it offers students who have library anxiety because, yes, library anxiety is a real thing, a way to use our services that they're comfortable with. I mean, I don't know how many times I'm chatting with a student that's in the library, but they chose to interact with a librarian that way because that was their preferred comfort level. Right. So why so, should we judge that? Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know that that was my pet peeve with the with this article too because you know I've studied and written about virtual chat reference which is the more accurate name not fancy instant messaging and it can be incredibly useful for students like you said including non-traditional students who can't make it to campus maybe students who are entirely online uh, she does reference a Duke survey where students were asked which of the following services is important to you select all that apply and so she while she kind of minimized how important chat reference was to the students, 30% of the students in the survey said that it was still important to them. And that's still a valuable amount. And if that's how, as you said, those students prefer to interact or it's the only way that they can because of their job or their lifestyle, then we're serving 30% of students that way. That's really important. Um, and even if it's only 30% important to Duke students, if we surveyed Berkeley students, I'm sure that the number would be much higher. 
because that's just, again, going back to what's important for the population. So uh, it's not a quote unquote fancy instant messaging system. It is a method of reference that works for a lot of people. Agreed. Um, huge missed opportunity there for our, for sure. One other thing that kind of struck me, and I think someone might have tweeted about it, is why can't we be both? Why can't we offer the traditional library services, but also innovate and provide new programming and tech and other resources? Uh, I, I just don't understand why we can't be both. Yeah, I think there can be a balance, and part of it comes down to understanding why the updates are happening. Are they just happening just because? Are they happening to just, you know, um, get people to work more or show that we're working more? Uh, mm -hmm. are, are there negative reasons behind the updates or are they really to serve the students? Um, and that, again, kind of goes back to a little bit of what we talked about before in surveying our students. I read an interesting article um, a couple of weeks ago in in the, in the library with the lead pipe. It was called Towards a Critical Assessment Practice by Ebony Magnus, Maggie Faber, and Jackie Bellinger. And they really discuss how librarians can do institutional and educational research in a more nuanced way that really takes into consideration your students, the power structures within our institutions, um, to make sure that we're being inclusive with the questions that we ask, with the data that we use, making sure that we're getting um, all of our students included, so I thought it was a really interesting read considering the citations that were used in this article and that they don't capture the full spectrum of students. So um, I'll definitely link that in the show notes too because I think it can be helpful for understanding how this article could have been approached differently, but also how we can prevent these unnecessary updates from happening at our libraries in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I look forward to reading that article that you linked. It sounds really interesting. I know inclusion is such a big thing right now, and it's something we should all be focusing on, honestly. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I, I guess, in a way, related to this article in a, in a broad sense was that um, programming was always tough for me. So when I read, when I first read the headline, and it, you know, it made me think of when I was a reference instruction librarian, and I used to do all these programs, and I'd get disappointed because the participation would be low or non-existent. I mean, I used to do programs that were like 10-minute programs. I used to have this one program I used to do called 10 in 10, 10 things you need to know about insert your topic here um, in 10 minutes. And I would get very low participation. And I, I, I personally felt like it was important to offer these programs. But then there were some points where I felt like, well, maybe this isn't just the audience. Maybe my student population, they just need traditional offerings and not the quote unquote glitz. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so like it, it it was deflating, but I think it was also the practical part of me because when I was a college student, I didn't have time to go to programs. I never went to any programs because I was you know, taking 21 credits, working three jobs. I just did not have time. So, you know, I mean, that was the only thing that like kind of touched on my personal experience, but I don't think she was, I don't think that's where she was going with this, but that's how I interpret related to it. 
Um, but I think there is, like I said earlier, there's room for both. I think there are students that do appreciate the glitz or the fun scavenger hunts and the programs. I mean, then there's the, the students who, who just come in there for a quiet space or to check out, you know, you know, materials. And I think that's fine. I think we can be more for other, you know, I think we can be different things to different people. We don't need to be one thing. Right. Exactly. It's striking that balance between what, what we want to provide and what our students' needs are. Yeah. Yeah. So those were my thoughts. Do you have any other thoughts that we uh, didn't touch on yet? No, I think we covered a lot. Um, my problems with the article were really with the data that she used to support the things that were claimed and kind of the lack of context to the broad issue. Um, you really can't use the term quote unquote college students and then expect to cover their needs in a two page printed article without missing so much of the nuance. So I think the headline isn't really that students want normal libraries. The headline is really that libraries need to implement things that are relevant to their students and create authentic mechanisms for really finding out what that is. Uh, so like we said, getting to know your students. Um, and that doesn't mean surveying only current users or only students in certain classes that you handpick, but a full spectrum of your student population and also taking into consideration your institutional factors. Like you said, there may be sometimes that it's out of the library's hands. And I actually saw that a bit on Twitter when I was looking around to see people's responses. Um, some people were kind of agreeing with what she was saying about the unneeded updates to libraries that, that they had study room space or other spaces pushed on them. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. entirely possible, but that also wasn't addressed in the article as a reason. And so that was a missed opportunity for that discussion. Yeah, yeah, it made it sound like it was just the library's decision to be blitzy. Right. It was just like, like these things don't get discussed in budget meetings. You mm -hmm. know, like other people in the institution are not looking at these, these um, things, you know. Um, but like you said, I think there was just so many missed opportunities in this article. Um, I would really love to know who her audience was. Who was she writing this article for? Did she not, you know, what did she hope to get out of it? Um, people to get out of it, honestly. Um, and I just think that librarians were probably not really happy about this article. I know I wasn't. Right. So I was, I was trying to think like what, what positive do we take out of it? And maybe it's just that we realize, A, how we're seen by certain people so we can be prepared to refute those ideas as usual, um, but also do a little self-reflection too of like, how can I prevent this from happening at my library? Is it happening at my library? Um, are there things that I can do to make sure that we're representing our students? And honestly, I feel like so many librarians are doing that that yeah. they're, they're probably rolling their eyes at me right now. But at the same time, if we're not, if, if we can do better, then let's do better, right? Right, right, exactly. So now we're gonna get into our weekly segment. And the past two episodes, we have done our work triumph and fail. But this week we wanted to try a new segment called Tweet of the Week. And we are gonna read two tweets by 
Rachel Stein, who is at Proffer Rachel Stein. And we just really liked that she kind of summed up our feelings about the Atlantic article pretty well. So she says, quote, Interesting that no teaching librarians seem to have been interviewed for this. Maybe if you're going to write a piece like this, ask a librarian, uh, end quote. And then her other tweet was, quote, let's not shame our students by expressing shock that they've never looked for a physical book in the library. And let's also not jump to facile con conclusions about what college students want in ways that obscure what really goes on in libraries. So that was definitely what I really liked too was what we talked about the fact that there's so much more going on than these minor conclusions that the article comes to. So that was uh, those were my favorite tweets of the week about this article. Uh, those were really great tweets. Thanks for sh thanks for sharing this. I mean, it was hard because there were a lot of people that were tweeting about this uh, particular article, both tweeting at the author and tweeting um, just you know retweeting the article. Um, so, but these are. These were really good ones. Yeah, I think they kind of summed it up. Yep. So that's it for episode number three. And do you want to say where you can find us? Absolutely. So you can find Jessica at Library Geek 611. And you can find me at History Buff 820. You can email us your comments or questions. Um, or work triumphs and fails at infolitteachingpodcast at gmail.com. We are also now available on iTunes, so please be sure to find us there, subscribe, download, and rate the podcast. Definitely. We want your feedback, questions, and encourage you to share anything that you'd like about your library instruction with us. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks.